Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. So today's topic is Uncharted, how to map the future together. I am delighted that joining us today again is Margaret Heffernan. Margaret is the author of the best-selling Uncharted, how to map the future together nominated for the Financial Times Best Business Book Award. She's a professor of practice at the University of Bath, lead faculty for the Forward Institute's Responsible Leadership Program, and through Merrick and Company, mentor CEOs and senior executives of major global organizations. She's the author of six books, and her TED Talk has been seen by over 12 million people. We're addicted to predictions, desperate for certainty about the future but the complexity of modern life won't provide that. Experts in forecasting are reluctant to look more than 400 days out. History doesn't repeat itself, and even genetics won't tell us everything we want to know. Today, Margaret joins me to discuss her new book, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future, in which she drew on a wide array of people and places to look at long-term projects developed over generations that could never have been planned the way that they have been run. So, Margaret, let's start the conversation talking about failure of predictions. Mm -hmm. Why is it pointless to predict the future? Well, I think, you know, basically this nerdy data point, if you like, of, you know, that really the furthest out you can see for accurate forecasting. If you're very open-minded, you consult a very broad range of sources, you constantly adjust your forecast in the light of new information, and always assign probabilities to your forecasts. The furthest you'll go, you can see out with any accuracy is about 400 days. I think this is a really stunning thing because what it means, bearing in mind that very few people do their forecasting with that degree of attention to detail, mm-hmm. you know, what it means is certainly if you're running any kind of organization is that your five-year plan is just mythical. And I think what it speaks to is the degree to which we create a sort of fantasy, I think, about the world where we're kind of in control of it and we really know what's going to happen. 
And as long as it works, you know, we feel very confident. And then when it doesn't work, we blame forecasters. But really, I think the fault is in us in not understanding the nature of complexity, which now characterizes a very great deal of our reality. And, you know, the accompanying nerdy data point, which is if you aren't so rigorous in your forecasting, probably the furthest you can see is 150 days. I think really it is appropriately unsettling. It means that there are many, many forces at work. Some of them we see, some of them we don't, which can change what we're doing in an instant. Now, when I wrote the book, you know, I felt this was quite an uphill battle because I think we're deeply defended against this reality. And because we've been sold a very powerful myth by Silicon Valley that, oh, no, no, we have so much data, we can predict everything flawlessly. But, you know, reality has a tendency to correct myths. And I would say that this year has done that, you know, very spectacularly. Nobody predicted, nobody could have predicted the coronavirus pandemic. Nobody really accurately predicted the presidential election. I'm talking to you today from the UK. Nobody predicted the chaos that is Brexit. So I think, you know, and and this doesn't make me happy, particularly. I think the truth is that we've all experienced now what complexity really feels like. And the challenge is to us now to start thinking about what this changes in terms of how we think about our lives and how we think about leadership. Because it changes it, what do you advise leaders who are listening? How should they be shifting how they think about leadership? That's a big question. It is a big question, and it's what the bulk of the book is about, because although the first sort of third of the book is about all the ways in which we can't do forecasting and why. You know, the rest of the book is, I like to think, much more upbeat and optimistic about what we need to do. But I think the very first thing we have to do is get over our obsession with planning, and in particular, our obsession with efficiency. So, you know, we have grown up the whole of the 20th century believing that a well-run organization was an efficient organization that, you know, you wanted to do things bigger, faster, cheaper, eliminate waste, outsource to reduce costs, and so on and so forth. And I think what we have seen in the beginning of the 21st century is that managing like that in conditions of uncertainty, which are now prevalent, is a spectacularly dangerous thing to do. So, for example, if you take the financial crisis of 2008, it was extremely efficient the way that the financial institutions were managing capital. But their efficiencies meant that, you know, when an unexpected shock hit the system, there wasn't enough capital available to prevent it nearly collapsing. So we have the Basel regulations now, which call on banks to hold more capital, which is less efficient, because it makes the system more robust. In other words, it's designed now to to survive shocks. 
you know, both in the United States and the United Kingdom, we've had very different experiences of the pandemic, but in some respects, they're quite similar in the sense that both governments had done quite a lot of extensive pandemic planning and put people and expertise and resources in place should this happen. And in both cases, we had governments that dismantled this because it seemed unnecessary to have such resources devoted to something that was never going to happen. In the United Kingdom, you know, we ran the National Health Service's critical care beds at an occupancy rate of 88%, which seems fantastically efficient. But when you think about it, not only did it leave us very unprepared for a pandemic, it would have left us very unprepared for a major aviation or car crash. So I think the first thing one has to take into consideration is that in uncertainty, which is different from risk in the sense that uncertainty is unquantifiable, efficiency erodes all of your capacity to respond. And so in many walks of life, we have to think about, are we running our organizations in ways that are sufficiently robust so that should another epidemic, God forbid, occur, should another banking crash occur, which almost, well, which the Bank of England says will happen, are we robust enough to confront those? And, you know, and I distinguish very specifically between robust and resilient. Resilience is when you can recover from a failure. Robust means you can keep going through it. So I think, you know, I think the idea that the great organization is run on these razor thin margins with gig economy workers who have no particular loyalty or affiliation and who contribute nothing to the collective wisdom of the organization, I think these things are deeply up for a re-examination. I think the other thing is that it means we need to prize the leadership capacity to surface great creative thinking quickly and to some degree, I think it means that, you know, the test of leadership is, has a leader built an organization that can indeed turn on a dime. This means both high levels of trust, high levels of freedom, high levels of creativity, high, high levels of mutual responsibility. This is very different from command and control, which despite decades of um, obituaries, has still been alive and well in many, many organizations and which really had a terrible shock when the pandemic hit because leaders were absolutely overwhelmed. Command and control didn't work. Most organizations have been saved by their more junior employees who at the local level did know exactly what to do. So I think it means we have to take a big, deep breath and start redefining what good leadership looks like, what its core definition and capacities are, and then see how far we are from it. You hit several of the topics that were on my mind, and I love the distinction between robust, I can keep going versus resilient, that I'm just not going to die, but it may take me a long time to recover. Yeah. And, you, and I think, you know, you could say just about by the skin of our teeth, the financial system proved resilient, you know, just, but that's really not good enough when you think 
just how long it took us to recover from the unemployment hit, for example, of that crisis, and how long it has taken very poor people to recover any kind of economic stability. And those who were recovering from 2008 or who had recovered are now going to be the the worst hit by COVID in many cases. And the combination of COVID and machine learning and all of the other robotic process automation will, for many of them, throw them back into a hole that they may not recover from in this career lifespan. You know, this speaks to the whole topic of responsible leadership and whether or not it is responsible or, frankly, even competent if leaders can't protect their own people. If they can't protect their own people, what on earth are they doing there? Well, and I would ask for many people, do they see that as their responsibility versus profit only as the motive? Yeah, and I think this absolutely is the agenda going forward. I mean, I would argue that if you can't look after the people that that are making the money for you, then really you clearly have no competence and you should not have any kind of license to operate. I mean, all companies are currently fundamentally extractive, right? They take from the good of society and natural resources. They depend on society to educate people. They depend on society to have roads that work, traffic systems that work, law and order system that works, education system that works. And they take from that in order to create profit. Now, if they can't make some contribution to the society that is providing that wealth, then I don't really see what business they have being in business. And I think this issue of legitimacy is a looming one in the face of climate change. Because fundamentally, as the, cl- as the climate you know, dumps yet more crisis on us, if companies don't have the capacity to look after people and maintain and provide some bulwark against this, then they won't have a stable society in which to make money for anybody. So this is all, you know, until now, this has been a pretty theoretical discussion. I don't think it's going to be very theoretical in the decade ahead. I agree. I'm getting much more involved in the ESG environmental, social, and governance uh, Mm. practices at the board level. And that's significantly less prevalent yet in the U.S. It seems to be much more European focused. (laughs) But this is the point at which, you know, I really do start to wonder, is there such a thing as leadership at all? I mean, we have known about climate change for at least 30 years. It's very clear that this is a fundamental threat to our way of life, to law and order, to the rule of law, that it's going to present enormous challenges of every kind. And yet I've seen almost no leaders take any meaningful step towards addressing it. And so I think, you know, I think from the position of leadership, I think this is a very telling challenge and crisis, which is if there is such a thing as leadership, what the heck has it been doing all this time? When I look at my 
very small company and our commitment is to elevate the quality of leadership around the world. And yet the fact that we are a company means someone needs to pay us. And if people don't believe that there is an issue in their projected career span, and that's what's interesting is for those who don't think legacy, they're just thinking, how do I maximize my income during my tenure? Mm -hmm. Then they aren't choosing to address these issues in the ways that you and I also believe is just ethically required for good leaders. Well, it may or may not be ethically required for good leaders, but it is going to be practically operational, operationally required. I mean, let's be very clear here. You know, we know climate change is real. We know that it's becoming more extreme. We know that it's becoming more disruptive. We know that certain industries are already starting to fail because of the because the financial institutions won't invest in them anymore. I mean, this is simply a question of competence. If you can't respond to the change in the environment around you, it seems to me that you're fundamentally not a very competent leader. You might be a, a kind of mediocre follower, maybe, but I'm, it's very striking to me how few so people with leadership titles have really risen to this challenge. It's not a new challenge. So, you know, at the worst end of the spectrum, you have companies that have just lied about it. At the, you know, the other end of the spectrum, we have, you just have, as you say, exactly, lots of people who just sort of thought, well, it's not going to be on my watch, so I don't need to worry about it. I mean, you have to wonder, you know, what do they think their children are going to inherit? What kind of world do they think their children are going to enter in a place where you don't, you can't predict which forests are going to catch fire? You can't predict which agricultural crops are going to be flooded. Well, you have no idea actually how this is going to play out specifically. Then what that means long term is you don't actually know if your company is going to be able to, fu to function. And it was quite interesting to me in the early days of the pandemic when people started really getting their heads around this concept of uncertainty in a much more real way than they had before. And a number of investment institutions started saying, hang on a second, in our financial reporting that we require of companies now, there is no measure of resilience or robustness. How can that be? I mean, it's all very well saying what you've done in the last quarter or the last year and then looking at the historical record. But in the context of uncertainty, that is no guarantee at all of how robust an organization is. Maybe we ought to start measuring that. And I think for anyone in a leadership position, I think that's a really serious challenge, which is actually how far ahead are you looking? Are you just looking ahead of your tenure? Or are you actually serving the organization as a whole? Are you looking systemically? Because it it seems like even leaders who would like to do more, and I, I trust that there are a lot of them, if they're publicly traded, there are limitations based on what, how the market looks at things. And depending on their boards and how they're evaluated, we don't yet have enough that are shifting because in some cases the structural dynamics that they face? Well, I think a lot of this is alibi seeking, frankly. 
Um, I mean, it's very striking. I spent a long time a couple months ago talking to Paul Pullman. Pullman very early on decided he was going to decouple economic growth from environmental degradation. Mm. Everybody sort of admired him and didn't copy him. They thought, you know, wow, that's a really scary thing to do. I mean, it was absolutely leadership in its truest sense. And what he proved, you know, was that he could do that. And not only did the share price not collapse, not only did the share, did the company not fail in the financial markets, it made out gangbusters. In other words, he proved you can do this. You know, he delivered a phenomenal return to his shareholders. He delivered a phenomenal experience to his workforce and the company found levels and tapped and developed levels of creativity and innovation they had never been able to access before. So I don't quite get the, oh, we can't do it because the markets won't let us. For one thing, it's such a pathetic image of, of leadership. You know, it's like a general standing at the top of a hill saying, oh, we daren't go any further because we might get hurt. This is the game these people are in. You know, I don't say this, you know, just theoretically. I've run companies. I've been in situations where one had to take truly difficult, painful decisions. But that's the job. And if you don't like it, don't be a leader. Be a super <laughs> follower. But I think I see many, many people with the, with the titles of chairman or CEO or both who think they're leaders because that's what the title implies. But actually, they're just followers. They're just looking to the left and right of them and saying, what's everybody else doing? I'll do that. I'm sorry. I don't think that that is any kind of definition of leadership. We're going to go on break now. And when we come back, let's talk about how you define leadership. And for our listeners, I encourage you during the break time to reflect on, are you, given how Margaret's talking about leadership, are you, in fact, taking the difficult decisions required at this point in time to keep your company robust rather than just resilient? We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovating Leadership, co-creating your future. This is Maureen Metcalf and Margaret Heffernan. We're talking about her book, Uncharted, How to Map the Future Together. And Margaret, you have a very clear point of view about what effective leadership looks like and how to hold leaders accountable. So let's start with what would you define as effective? Well, I think there are a couple of things. I think, first of all, absolutely the job of leadership is to ensure the organization that a leader runs is fit for the future. And I'm very sympathetic to the fact that this has become harder than ever. So I don't think it's an easy job. I don't think it's a job that anybody wanting, you know, a lot of fun and glamour should take on. I think it's an exceptionally challenging job. But as a consequence, I guess the way that I define leadership, which is not necessarily how others define it, is I think that leaders first and foremost are people who think for themselves. They're not just copycats. They're not looking for a recipe that will deliver, you know, instant success. They are truly able to look at the world around them and think about in their own terms, in the terms of their company, what is the right thing to do for the people that, who work for them and for the society which they serve. And they have the capacity to think about that both deeply and broad. I don't think they're just people who hit their numbers. I think those are managers. Leaders have to be looking out ahead into the future. They have to be thinking about what makes this business sustainable, politically, socially, environmentally, or operationally, financially, on all those levels. And I think, you know, I think we see a lot of management. I think we see very little in the way of leadership, in fact. So how do we hold leaders accountable to performance beyond their corporate returns? And I hear people like Jamie Dimon talking about it. And yet this is where I go back to structurally. I think many leaders believe the job is that thing you talked about, being extractive, delivering to their shareholders the highest value, in some cases paying their people as little as possible, And we all know of organizations where uh, their employees are still on public assistance, that they are following the traditional formula, probably acting in a way that's command and control. They're not responding to climate change because it's not yet impacting their returns. So they're going to maximize, 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 and then hit the cliff and Mm -hmm. not be prepared to move into the future. Right, right. So yes, I accept that there are plenty of people who are doing that. I think, how do we hold them to account? Well, I think we have to call them out for what they're doing. 
And I think one of the difficult things about the leadership industry, so to speak, is that on the whole, it does exactly the opposite. On the whole, what it does is cozy up to leaders, you know, hoping to get their time and attention. And I understand the business model that requires that. But I think it robs the work of integrity. And I fully acknowledge that the position from which I write what I write is extremely privileged. I don't do any work I don't like. I don't work for people whose business strategies I don't approve of. Many of the companies that I work with specifically engage me to be a pretty brutally frank, critical friend because they need somebody in the room saying, this doesn't wash. You're being surrounded by sycophants and flatterers. And actually, your idea of your company and your idea of yourself doesn't ring true. Now, does that mean that I get you know less work than probably I could get? Probably. But I just don't see the point of working any other way. You know, I take this quite personally. I do worry about how do I describe to my children what I do and what part I have in the desecration of the world that they're going to inherit. I want to be able to answer their questions with a straight face and not feel too awful about it. You know, it's interesting how few people, they may say those words, but I don't think they have an image of how it plays out. And the difference is you say those words and you take action to line your behavior with your values. I hear other people who either aren't aligning behaviors and words or they're thinking that somehow it'll magically get fixed. I had a large consulting firm partner tell me a few years ago that the government will just come up with something that will fix it all, like big aluminum foil reflectors to make sure that the earth doesn't heat any more than a certain amount or something that seemed equally nonsensical. So it is curious to me that the people I would think would be responding differently are not yet in many cases. Well, I think it's also pretty interesting, you know, the people who think the government will bail them out of climate change are also the people who don't want to pay taxes. I don't know where this money's supposed to come from. So, you know, what we're, what you and I are talking about is just cognitive dissonance, which is I want to have fun. I don't want to pay the price. I want it all to turn out magically okay in the end. I have some sympathy with that. I'd love to think it's all going to turn out magically in the end. I just, you know. <laughs> you just don't. <laughs> well, I don't. I, and I, you know, I also, you know, I, I reached voting age rather a long time ago. So I think I, that qualifies me as an adult. And as an adult, I think that's a rather childish view to take of the world. Let's go back to the idea of forecasting then. You talk about the difference between predicting and taking a different way of being. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do feel very strongly that the fact that we can't predict is a much bigger deal than, you know, the much trumpeted Davos discovery, what they called the fourth industrial revolution. I think the failure, you know, I think all of modern management has been based on this idea of forecast, plan, execute. And if you can't forecast it, everything changes. And I think this is the most fundamental shift 
in the way that we do things in my lifetime. And I think most organizations haven't even begun to get their heads around it. Now, I think there are ways to get it one head, one's head around it, but I don't think you can do that until you accept that actually this forecasting lock is going to let you down when you least expect it. And when it does turn out okay, it doesn't mean, oh, great, life's gone back to normal. It just means you hit one of those pockets, you know, where like things turn out okay. It's a little bit like I was talking to the, the psychologist, Dan Ariely, the other day, and he was saying, it's like, you know, you're texting in your car and you don't die. And you think, well, there you are. You see, texting my car isn't that dangerous, right? So it's like we have this kind of weird inability to see that the way that we're living and running our organizations is really anachronistic. And as long as we get away with it, we think it's okay. But really, it's not okay. It's a bit like saying, well, yeah, I smoke, but, you know, I don't have cancer. Yeah, not yet. yet. Right? And that's just a deeply precarious way in which to lead one's life or run one's organization. So I think much more important is, A, to, instead of planning to start thinking about preparedness, what are we going to do to make our organization more robust? What do we need that we don't have? What do we have that we don't need? Like really thinking long term about what would make this organization truly robust. The second thing is to think long and hard about what do I want this organization to stand for, not just this year and five years from now, but intrinsically for generations ahead. And therefore, what do I do today to make the first steps towards that? So it's a kind of backcasting instead of forecasting. I think it requires infinitely more imagination and creativity than most people develop when they go through business schools or management schools, which generally, not unique, not everywhere, but generally don't particularly strive to develop creativity, imagination, and the capacity to innovate. And it depends on a capacity to build organizations that have the kind of social robustness that we would wish to see in organizations of all kinds. So when you say social robustness, do you mean internal? Because we know that people are innovative and creative in environments where they feel safe. If I'm concerned that I'm going to get fired anytime I do something that is only slightly askew from the rules, then I won't be at all creative. Are you referring to that or the bigger picture? My company or my organization is also part of a larger society. And if I am only taking care of what's in my boundaries, then we as a larger social ecosystem will not thrive. Right. Well, I think both, but I also think, you know, I, I interviewed a number of CEOs who had steered their organizations through real existential crises, moments when it looked as if the organization would absolutely fail. And they were some of the most extraordinary interviews I've ever done. Now, bear in mind that these were, you know, crises that the individuals had survived. And so they're in the past and they did survive them. So that's great. Nevertheless, in the telling of these stories, each one of these individuals at some point wept because simply remembering this, even though it's a story with a happy ending, simply remembering it was so gut-wrenching. 
And so I asked them each at some point, obviously, if this is was so excruciating that even thinking back on it years later produces such a deep emotional response. How on earth did you get through this? And every single one of them, quite unprompted, gave me the same answer. They said it was my friends and colleagues that got me through. Longevity, one of them said, really counts. Because when you're up against it, you keep going for your colleagues and they keep going for you. And it just made me reflect on how many organizations do I see where there is that degree of social connectedness between the people who work there. And of course, the more we depend on gig economies and this kind of nifty, handy-dandy HR swapping in and out of people all the time, it seems to me the less robust as organizations our companies become because that social fabric is not being woven. In fact, in many, many cases, it's actively being made fragile. When we talk about resilience, we look at four elements, and one being that having colleagues, or colleagues and people outside of work that, yes. that help boost our physical, emotional, spiritual health yeah. so that we can go back the next day. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's very interesting because I remember one program when I was teaching on the Responsible Leadership Program, I organized, specifically organized a session on friendship because it's a subject I take really seriously. And I brought in some CEOs to talk about how much the success in their careers had depended on friends and confidants both to help get them through crises, but also to keep them true to themselves, to remember the best of them so that they didn't lose sight of it under pressure. And then after the session, everybody went for a walk. And I remember joining some of the participants and they all said, you know, I don't have any friends. I'm working too hard. It's all I can do to, you know, have time with my partner and kids. I used to have friends but I just don't have any time for them anymore. And I thought, my God, you know, who is going to hold these people to the best in themselves if fundamentally they're, make, they're going through extreme experiences that test you unbelievably if they have no one who can do that? I facilitate a CEO, it's just called the executive forum, but one of the CEO groups where they come together and they are able to share freely business issues and also talk about family. I perceive them as friends, especially the group I stepped in to start facilitating is over 20 years old. So some of them have been there for a very long time and really do have deep friendships now. Yeah. So I think those things are great. And I, I have a relationship with a couple of similar type organizations and some of them indeed, exactly as you say, are very long, very long lives. And I am full of, you know, full of respect for them. And I have seen them absolutely hold some of their members together when they were just being buffeted from all sides. So I think these sorts of organizations are absolutely worth their weight in gold. But I also know there are a very large number of CEOs who wouldn't go anywhere near them. I mean, A, they'd feel a competitive threat. B, they don't 
feel that they can be that open and see, I'm not sure they're always that interested in other people, to be honest. It is curious why some people choose them. And also the personalities of my group, what we do, is very different than some of the other groups. Right. You know, some folks are introspective. Some people more report yeah. out what's happening mm -hmm. without a lot of inner examination. I don't have a judgment on either one. They're just different in their intention. Yeah. But I think they're a, they're a phenomenal in sort of forum. And I certainly feel that had I belonged to a group like that when I was still working as a CEO, my life would have been much better. And I think a lot of my decisions would have been better. What would have attracted you to that kind of forum? Did you just not know about them? Or was there something else that kept you from taking the time or the interest? I'm not sure they actually existed, to be honest. I think I probably might have been put off because, you know, at the end of the day, the one thing I wanted to do was get home to my very young children. Certainly now I recognize that I would have been much better placed to have a group of trusted peers who could share their experience with me because I've never had an experience as lonely as you know running a company where everybody depended on me. What else do you wish you had known, starting with that running a company where you had hundreds of thousands of families counting on you, right? Yeah. What else do I wish I'd known? This is going to sound rather arrogant. I wish I'd known how good I was, which I absolutely did not. And I don't say that because I think I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's something in the female CEOs that I've mentored. It's a, it's a characteristic I encounter a lot. Not invariably. Some do really do know how good they are, and that makes them better. It really does. They're, you know, they don't, they're not grandiose about this. But they have a sense of their own capability and their own competence. And it makes them much better leaders. So I wish I'd known that. I mean, I wish I'd, I'd known to ask for help more often or more easily. In the end, I definitely found people who, who were generally board members who were phenomenal. I mean, just phenomenal human beings and very generous with their time and their advice and their insight and so on. But I wish I'd found more people like that earlier. I was pretty good at managing conflict, so that was not a big issue for me. Mostly, I wish I'd had more confidence than I had, and I wish I'd felt that I didn't always have to do everything in a hurry. Mm. So just the, the constant pace of yeah, expectations. I mean, and, and some of this, you know, probably reveals my age. I mean, I have historically been somebody who really liked speed really liked pace. You know, when I worked at the BBC, I had two jobs. Sadly, not two salaries, but two jobs. Yeah. I've been very fortunate in always doing jobs I really loved. So if you're doing something you love, why wouldn't you want more of it, right? But I think it gave me a weakness for speed, which wasn't, you know, necessarily terrible. I think I probably would have been a better leader if every now and then I could have said to myself, actually, Margaret, just slow down and stop for a bit and just give yourself some time when you're not acting, you know, you're not taking decisions, just give yourself some distance and some time. 
Now, would I have made different, better decisions? I have absolutely no idea. But I think I would have felt more confident in the decisions that I did take if I'd had more time to think about them. I have a partner who continually pulls me out of the work and reminds me, you know, as we're recording this over the winter holiday break, that really you're supposed to be taking some time off over this time. And so I appreciate you doing this today as well. And the reminder that I need someone to tell me to do it because those of us who get to a certain point are likely committed to both speed and just volume of work to get through. To do it well, there's a lot. Yeah. And it's interesting because I have a, a very close friend who is running her own business and she's you know, she spent quite a lot of time in the salt mines and all of that time is really paying off and her business is taking off. And I spent most of yesterday you know, on a long walk saying, say no. <laughs> say you'll do it six months from now, but you can't do it now. And I, I felt exactly as I'm sure people would have felt if they'd said that to me, right? Which is, wow, I'm making no traction here at all. (laughs) Because suddenly, you know, all the sort of work that she's fought for, all the credibility she's fought for, you know, all of this is coming good. And she doesn't want to slow down and she doesn't, you know, and she doesn't think that being overwhelmed with work is going to be excruciating and she thinks she can do it. And I just, you know, sat there thinking, oh, what can you do to persuade somebody that, yeah, it is your dream come true, all of these contracts to work for these amazing organizations and do work you truly believe in. But it's going to be your nightmare come true when you discover that you can't do it as well as you want to do it because you don't have the time or the energy. Yeah, it's just a question of hours. Oh, it's excruciating. Margaret, this has just been such an enlightening conversation. I appreciate your wisdom in sharing your book and also your candor in sharing your experiences. And I trust that our listeners will hear of the many things that Margaret's talked about. What stands out to me is the importance of, as a CEO or as a senior executive, we're facing a a range of changes and a range of pressures that we have not experienced. To be responsible, we need to shift how we think about them, shift how we look at leadership and forecasting and our roles in the world. And part of doing that means we need to ask for help. We need to have colleagues who can do this with us because it just isn't a solo job. And even if we have good leadership teams, there are things that we don't always share. In some cases, legally, we shouldn't. And in others, it's about the role that we choose not to. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a really brilliant summary. And I think, you know, although I'm very hard on leaders, I also absolutely accept, you know, that that the job is ferociously difficult. I don't think it's ever been as difficult as now. You know, in the pandemic crisis, we saw a lot of leaders discovering depths and capabilities and compassion that I think they didn't know they had. But I also hear a lot of people talking about getting back to normal. Whatever the past normal was, I really think that's gone. And the job of leaders now is to say what lies ahead. If they can do that, the rest will follow. And if they can't do that, I fear for them. 
I could not summarize any better, so I'm not going to try. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for your time and all you're doing in the world. Well, thank you for your interest in my work and for what you're doing, because, you know, there's a lot of work to be done out there and it needs good people to put their shoulder to the wheel. And that I am doing. Right. So I wish you a lovely holiday and hopefully next year at ILA, I'll get to see your smiling face in person and have another conversation. I hope so. And you're absolutely right. You know, the great thing about this holiday is the whole world stops. And that's a precious moment. And let's not waste it. The whole world stops and we get to rethink. I do think the idea that we're not going back to the old normal creates an opportunity at a point in time when the world needs it. Yes, definitely. So let's use it to the hilt. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday. You too, Maureen. Take care. Thank you for investing your precious time with us today. We're delighted to share the wisdom from the International Leadership Association 2020 Global Leadership Conference, Leading at the Edge. We encourage you to join for additional conversations. Please bookmark this podcast, subscribe, like it, share it with your friends and colleagues. Most importantly, thank you for focusing on elevating your own leadership and making an impact in the world today. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.